Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, July 12th, and we're back with a Twitter Tuesday because Bill Cohan and Eric Gardner are here with everything you need to know about Elon Musk backing away from his agreement to purchase Twitter.com. Bill and Eric explain what it means for Twitter, for Elon, and for all the lawyers involved who are about to get paid. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of Powers That Be. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Happy Tuesday, everybody. It's your boy, Peter. I'm back from a brief uh, hiatus. I hope Teddy held it down for everyone. If you are a Puck listener and reader and you missed this news, I don't know what's wrong with you. Elon Musk sent a letter to Twitter on Friday night of last week saying he was threatening to back out of the deal that he has uh, been pursuing since April to buy Twitter. Basically saying that the company has failed to provide sufficient data about bots on its platform. This is almost certainly headed <laughs> to the courts. Uh, and I'm joined today by Bill Cohan and Eric Gardner to answer all of my dumb questions about what this means for Elon, for Twitter, for Twitter shareholders, for employees. This is a huge story. Bill, I want to start with you. In your, in your newsletter, Dry Powder, you wrote that you were talking to this banker uh, on Wall Street the other day, and he said in his 40-plus years of M&A experience, he'd never seen anything like what Elon Musk has just done, not only embarrassing himself, but also putting his other companies in jeopardy. Is that the consensus take on Wall Street right now? I think uh, Wall Street has pretty much had it with this guy. There is one uh, interesting little twist if you can you know hopefully you can follow me here so if he were to actually either recut the deal or be forced to complete the deal because of specific performance and now i'm sounding like eric gardner if he's forced by the chancery court to actually close this deal or if he recuts it and at a lower price and then closes the deal the banks on Wall Street that committed to the senior note financing, the senior secured note financings, $12.5 billion of financing, if they actually have to provide that financing, it's going to cost them much higher interest rate than they originally committed to, which will perfect for these Wall Street firms hundreds of millions of dollars of losses just on a, a present value of the debt basis. And if they have to attach a high, they've been given permission to flex the interest rate that, you know, i.e. increase the interest rate to a sufficient level to be able to sell it. And they've committed to it at a lower interest rate. So 
So the difference between those interest rates is going to represent a serious present value loss for these banks. They actually would be much happier if this deal just fell apart and went away. Or they, and again, I, I'd be interested if Eric thinks this is a, a valid legal argument. I've heard that they are going to argue that since Elon sent this letter terminating the deal on Friday night, that this deal is off. And if there's somehow a new deal at a lower price or, you know, he's forced to complete the deal, that's a new deal. And therefore, the banks are out of their commitment to provide the financing for the old deal. And therefore, they can price it properly to sell it and they won't have to have a mark-to-market loss. So that's kind of floating around Wall Street. The, the other thing that's sort of floating around is that he's on the hook for $44 billion or the difference between $44 billion and whatever... Twitter's value is, you know, when the dust settles here, you know, and and the stock goes into the 20s, this idea that he can get out of it for a billion dollars, you know, is no longer operative, that either he's going to have to be forced to complete the deal at 44 billion, or he's going to have to, you know, pay to Twitter the difference between 44 and the value of Twitter once the dust settles. Or something like $20 billion. Mm-hmm. Um, Eric, so, you know, you're the legal maven here. How does this play out in the courts? Also, why why is Delaware keep coming up here? <laughs> Delaware is where everyone incorporates, uh, you know, it's a favorite venue. Um, they have a pretty high class um, business courts and and uh, fairly speedy as well. So, so companies do like that. I do think that bill raises a very uh, interesting and important point here. And I think it's gotten a lot less attention that, than you'd think in the last few days. It's, you know, what are, do the financiers think here? What what are they going to do? You know, it's one thing for everyone to toss around this specific performance clause, the one that says basically Twitter can make Elon Musk go forward with this deal. Twitter can file a lawsuit, seek an injunction, try to like really get Musk to to pony up the $44 billion. But the deal was always contingent on financing coming through. And to the extent that the financiers say, look, the material conditions of this whole transaction have changed and, and, and you know, we no longer have a, a, you know, are committed to this, they can do that. They'll probably be sued as well, but they can, they'll intervene in the fight and, and they'll say, you know, this deal was contingent on a willing buyer coming in and uh, turning around this company. And, and, you know, it's unfair for us to finance some transaction where the buyer is, is kicking his feet, screaming into, into this deal. The other thing that I would say that, that kind of gets overlooked is that, yes, Twitter can file a lawsuit and, and seek specific performance of this deal, but that's not it. They'll, they can also, you know, seek damages for how much Elon Musk is, you know, hurting this company by, you know, dragging them through the mud here. I think that when we do see the lawsuit come in the next few days, we're we're going to see see a lot that you know maybe wasn't talked about. That all said, I, I still would bet on some negotiated 
end to this whole thing. It's just inconceivable to me. Yes, you know, we all saw this car crash coming a, a, a mile away. We we knew that these lawsuits were, were going to come. But, you know, if if we're sitting here a year from now talking about, you know, the ruling that just came and, and, and digesting it, I'd be surprised. I think, you know, at some point, everyone's got to sit down and try to figure out a number between 1 and 44. That makes sense. The Twitter board, the Twitter management never really wanted Elon Musk to own the company in the first place. They had to accept the deal because the, you know, the, the offer was so good. Their shareholders would shoot them if they, if they said no. So they said yes, but they didn't like say yes enthusiastically. The Times, uh, the deal book uh, lead today, I think captured it beautifully. You know, it's going to be a lawsuit between a company that never wanted to be sold and a buyer who doesn't want to buy it. I mean, how absurd is that? It's one of the more absurd things I've ever seen. Uh, but you've been around the block longer than I have when it comes to this. So I trust your word here. Hey, guys, take, we're going to take a quick break and then come back for more with, with uh, Bill and Eric. Welcome back, everyone. Hey, Bill. Uh, just to play devil's advocate here, Elon's advocate, just as a, just as an exercise, <laughs> um, he one of the reasons he expressed for wanting to buy Twitter was to you know make sure that there was human verification and that there weren't like so many bots on the platform. Now he's using that as the excuse for pulling back, which is Twitter hasn't been transparent about the amount of bots on its platform, even though they at least disclose these things to on earnings calls and whatnot. Um, does he have any kind of argument or point here? Or is this just like a fig leaf? To me, as I said in my piece yesterday, it sounds like the most bogus excuse uh, I've, I've heard in a long time. Uh, so what? I mean, this whole bot thing is, to me, complete, you know, as you say, fig leaf. He then added to it this somehow idea that Twitter wasn't running its business in the ordinary course and didn't get permission from Elon Musk to fire some people or other people left. I mean, like five people left out of the 7,500 person workforce and suddenly that's uh, not running the company in the ordinary course of business. I think this is a guy who played it beautifully from January when he started accumulating the stock to April 25th when he signed the merger agreement, boxing in the Twitter board by offering a price for the company that was so obviously fair that they couldn't refuse. And then ever since he signed that merger agreement, he's acted like a total petulant child and a buffoon. And it ended up, you know, now two plus months later uh, with him you know, coming up with these ridiculous reasons. I mean, if I were the partner at Skadden who wrote that letter, I'd be really embarrassed. I can only imagine what the dynamic was between Elon Musk and Skadden Arps uh, to get them to write that letter because it's, it's, it's laughable. It's truly a joke, which is why, you know, my friend with 40 years experience on Wall Street says he's, you know, as an M&A guy, says he's never seen anything uh, like it. Yeah, I mean, the... From my point of view, too, like the reputational damage here is is also noteworthy. While he was in the process of trying to acquire Twitter, he built up like a lot of 
support and respect on the right and the center right for, you know, standing up for free speech. And, you know, conservatives thought he would let Donald Trump back on the platform. And he pissed off a lot of liberals in the process, too. And now that he's backing away, Trump at a rally the other night attacked him. He's lost support from conservatives who wanted him to take over Twitter so he could, like, fight back against woke big tech or whatever. And now he's like, he's like when Andrew Yang left the Democratic Party. Now he's just like somewhere in the middle and no one likes him. You know, Republicans don't like him. Democrats don't like him. Well, totally understandable that Trump, I mean, he he was Trump's only hope of getting back on Twitter. So totally. So Eric, what are the immediate like next steps here? You said we're waiting for a lawsuit in the next couple of days, right? Yeah, I'm surprised it won't come today. In, in fact, because I would assume that both sides are, are going to be rushing to court to to file something. You know, the one one thing I would quibble with Bill is that I don't think that Elon needs to apologize to Skadden. I, I think that these lawyers, you know, were looking at these tens of millions of dollars in banking fees and getting a little jealous, and 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 so Elon <laughs> decided to spread spread the love around. Uh, quite a lot, there's a lot of legal fees and, and you know, with the whole bots thing, you know, I'll, what I say to that is not, it's not necessarily not an issue, you know, but the, the question is, what didn't Elon know after he bought the company that he didn't know, like before, I mean, like this should have been part of the due diligence in buying the company. There was no secrets there about, about, about the problem. So if he had a, an issue there, he could have raised it beforehand. It just screams a pretext. And, you know, his lawyers certainly have a job cut out for them to show that, you know, Twitter somehow breached this, this agreement. They will make bones about data. Uh, you know, whether he was given all the data that, that he demanded, I think that's really where their hopes rest and lie. Yeah, I mean, um, Musk tweeted out this this meme uh, on Sunday, basically saying, like, they said I couldn't buy Twitter. Then they wouldn't disclose bot info. Now they want to force me to buy Twitter in court. Now they have to disclose bot info in court. And against all of these bold text statements is our pictures of Elon laughing. In other words, like, he almost like a threat is like, oh, now Twitter has to disclose all of their user data or certain parts of their data in court in the discovery process. But like, you know. Maybe, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, like everyone seizes on discovery as being, you know, the you know catch-all gotcha thing. But, you know, we'll, we'll see. It's got to be relevant. And uh, I'm sure the you know, there'll be motions made, you know, with regard to that. And even if the data comes, so what? You know, <laughs> I mean, like, that's the le- least of Twitter's concerns right now that that data is going to get out about about their bot situation. I think right now they're more concerned, okay, you know, how do we get through this rocky period? I mean, their their stock is probably going to take a hit. They're going to face shareholder lawsuits no matter how this comes out, you know. And if Elon's not acquiring the company, who is? So there there's lots of pressing problems. I don't think that discovery is up there right now. This is probably is Twitter's best asset at the moment, this lawsuit against Elon Musk. How so? It's probably a better asset than their P&L statement, which, you know, only generates, you know, at best a billion dollars of EBITDA a year. So this lawsuit is probably worth more than that. For Twitter to litigate with the world's richest guy, you know, he, I mean, it's just silliness. So they're going to have to compromise and negotiate something. And uh, that'll be interesting to watch. Yes. Uh, Twitter.com slash jobs will probably have some legal uh, 
roles opening up soon for all of you lawyers out there. Um, <laughs> guys, thank you so much for your insight on this. No one explains it better. And if you work at Twitter right now, you know where to find all of us puck reporters getting our DMs and tell us what's going on over there. Uh, we will see everyone tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.